Sport Clips haircut stylists understand how to make guys look their best based on their facial shape, hair texture, and lifestyle. And now Sport Clips has added a new signature scent, eucalyptus, lavender, and chamomile to their MVP haircut experience that takes relaxation up a notch. The MVP includes a seven-point massaging shampoo and their new signature scent on a perfectly steamed hot towel. What are you waiting for? Let Sport Clips stylists make you look your best. Sport Clips, the pro in men's hair. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Johnny Cash, the man in black, said he wore all black on behalf of the poor and hungry, the old who were neglected, the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, and those betrayed by drugs. As a man who had grown up dirt poor, struggled his whole life with addiction, was thrown in jail seven times, and found himself in the proverbial wilderness during a long stretch of his career, Johnny had a real heart for those kinds of folks. He was a man who had lived numerous ups and downs himself. Marshall Terrell, co-author of the book Johnny Cash, The Redemption of American Icon, will take us through these biographical peaks and valleys today. We talk about Cash's hard scrabble upbringing on a cotton farm, his unfulfilled desire to please his father, and how his rise into stardom was accompanied by the arrival of a set of personal demons. We also discuss how, after becoming the top entertainer in the world, Cash's career slid into two decades of music industry irrelevance, the big comeback he made near the end of his life, and the faith that sustained him through all his struggles and triumphs. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is cash. Marshall Terrell, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Great to be back. So we had you on the show a while back ago to talk about an American icon of cool, Steve McQueen, the king of cool. And you've co-authored another book about another icon of cool. And that's Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash is an interesting character. He's, he, you know, he died back in, I guess, 2003. But like he's still relevant. Like he's, still, he's like Steve McQueen. He's just like, man, he's cool. I've seen 15-year-old kids who were, weren't even born when you know Johnny Cash was alive, and they're wearing Johnny Cash T-shirts, have you figured out like what has made Cash such an intriguing character? I mean, like what made him cool, like Steve McQueen? It's an interesting question because you know I th- I think there's an element of mystery there. I mean, we're talking about icons from the '60s and the '70s where you know they weren't in your face every day, so I think that that certainly plays a part in it. The other factor is that they were both rebels. McQueen, certainly more overtly so, but Cash was kind of like, you know, a country outlaw in that, uh, you know, Nashville kind of had its own establishment and rules and Cash always kind of played outside of those rules. And when he first came on the scene, was he rock and roll? Was he rockabilly? Was he country? Nobody could really quite put their finger on the guy. And so I think that that, element of mystery is kind of, uh, it kind of chased him throughout his career. So as I read your book, Johnny Cash, The Redemption of an American Icon, three things stood out to me that, you know, kind of, I think contributed to that mystery of Johnny Cash. One, you know, he had a lifelong addiction battle and we'll talk about that. And then he also, in his career, it seems like he was always struggling to stay relevant and he wanted to be wanted by his fans. And then the other part of this kind of underlying all of it was, you know, his deep abiding faith. And we'll talk about that too, because I think that also contributed to his coolness factor because the way he approached faith, it was different than a lot of other people. 
And as I read the book, it seemed like the origins of a lot of these things, it started in Cash's childhood. What was his childhood like? And particularly, what was his relationship with his parents like? Well, his childhood, you know, when you talk about the, the term dirt poor, that uh, applies to him and his family because they were sharecroppers. And so they were always toiling in the dirt. And sharecroppers, the way that that whole system was set up was that they were never, ever going to get ahead in life. They were always going to be picking cotton, working the fields. And so, um, you know, like I said, dirt poor is, is, is the terminology, but his childhood, you know, it was, it was sharecropping. It was church. It was, uh, there was a certain rigidity to his life growing up. There was no room for dreaming. There was no room for, you know, getting ahead in life. So it was always kind of every, so everything was kind of circled and centered around the church because that was really kind of the only relief that they could get. That was the only way that they could think of maybe perhaps a better life. And so, you know, it was a hard, tough life, especially for a dreamer like Johnny Cash. And so he also had a a father, Ray, who was just a very stern, prototypical depression era father who, you know, they had kids and they had a lot of kids and that was to help work the farm because, um, you know, those workers were, is what kept them alive. They, they had to work hard every day of their lives. And that's just what his life was like growing up. And then of course you add alcohol to the mix and, and, you know, his father was a big time drinker. You know, it adds that extra element of misery to it. And the other thing you talk about in the book is that it always seemed like Johnny Cash could never get his dad's approval. Like no matter what he did, even as a, as a boy, even when he was like the peak of his career, like his dad was never impressed. Never like that's you're you're still nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. And you know, you you look. There's a straight through line in that with a lot of famous people. The first person that comes to mind is Michael Jackson. You know, you know, I did a book on Pete Maravich, the great basketball player. He was always trying to not impress his father, but to seek his approval. A lot. You know, I remember just recently seeing the uh, Elton John movie, and I didn't know that. You know, he was trying to seek his father's approval. And so I think with a lot, with a lot of the greats, that's the driving force. And I think if you, if you look into, uh, like with Steve McQueen, I mean, he never knew his father, but, you know, he always wanted to find him and, you know, basically throw it in his face and say, look, I became, uh, I became a man. I became somebody much better than you could have ever anticipated. So I think that those are, you know, that's that see-through line with all the great uh, artists. Well, another thing that happened in his childhood that affected him profoundly is he lost a brother. His brother died in a really tragic accident. Right. And that that, that was uh, not only impactful on his life, but that devastated the family. His brother, Jack, was two years older than Johnny. And, J- and Jack was, I guess it would be tough to call him a saint, but the, the kid never sinned. And he had this biblical knowledge and this knowledge about life way beyond his years. And so everybody had pegged Jack as um, he was going to be the preacher of the family. And, you know, in the deep South, that was, uh, you know, that was like saying that you were going to become a lawyer. And so Jack was one of those kids that didn't have to be told to do his chores. He wasn't a dreamer. Anything he did was to contribute to the family. For example, the one, one of the reasons why he was killed was because he, he had an opportunity to go fishing with Johnny. It was like on a Saturday 
or he could go to the high school and go to the shop class and and cut up some some metal piping, but he'd be making extra money. He'd make like an extra $2 and he'd give that to the family. And so that's what he opted to do that day. And then of course he got into a, a terrible accident where the saw basically penetrated his whole chest and then his innards kind of came out. And then he was in the hospital for a week and then eventually he passed away. And so not only was it the devastation of that accident, but it was what Johnny's dad said to him afterwards. And that was, I wish it were you instead of Jack. And so that haunted Johnny for years. Man, I, I, I mean, you can, you can vicariously experience how awful that made him feel. I mean, it's just such a gut punch to hear that from your own, your own father. But the thing is, you know, Johnny, he kept trying to get his dad's approval. He never stopped trying to win his approval. There was another story you recount. This was later on in his life when he was famous. He invites his parents over and he invites Billy Graham over and his wife for dinner. Billy Graham, he was a big deal when he was at the height of his, his career. And after dinner, Johnny goes over to his dad and says, Dad, what do you think about that? You know, Billy Graham, that's pretty awesome, huh? And his dad just tells him, you still ain't nothing, boy. I mean, I mean he still, his dad never thought much of him, still couldn't, couldn't please him. But what about his mom? What was Johnny Cash's relationship like with his mother? His relationship with his mother was wonderful. You know, his, her, her name was Carrie. She was a very sweet and, and loving woman, complete opposite of his father. And I don't mean to paint the father as this black villain, you know, the guy that wears uh, the black cowboy hat, because he, he was just, he was a guy that, you know, didn't have a whole lot of education and had a big family and had to take care of them. And, you know, he was just a man of his time. The mother was a deeply religious very sweet. And she always told John, JR is what he was called as a kid, that he had this gift. And so she, she was the encouraging one. So she was, she was the yin to the father's yang and, you know, always told him, God has a purpose for you and God has a purpose for your life. And so John, JR took that to heart. So, you know, those were the, the two extremes, you know, that he had growing up. And of course that began to manifest itself into adulthood. When did he start taking up singing? He started writing a little bit, dabbling. After Jack's accident, the writing started coming through uh, about a year or two after that, and then started singing maybe a couple years after uh, his accident. And then, of course, when he was in high school, that's when he was really, he was just kind of known as, quote unquote, the, the singer. He was, he, was, he was the entertainer in high school. And um, so that was kind of, what his personality was like, but he, you know, he, he had no ambition for it. Any, anything beyond that. He talked about his greatest ambition one day was that he would be heard one day on the radio. It wasn't anything beyond that. And, and like, when did he decide to like make a go out of being a musician? It's like, he, he played, you know, some kind of, some shows in high school, but when did he was like, I'm going to try to make this like a profession. When did that happen? Well, I think that was after he was married when he came back from his military service. And, you know, he, he worked for this guy uh, that, you know, he, he sold appliances door to door. Can you imagine doing that these days? Oh, geez, and yeah. uh, he just hated that. And, and um, the guy that he worked for knew John was a good guy and, you know, just kept fronting him this money, advancing him money, even though he was a terrible salesman. And then of course, when, when John made it big, he paid that guy back everything that he owed him, which floored the guy. But to, to answer your question, uh, you know, when he came back from the army, 
and uh, started selling appliances, but he was also writing songs and singing songs. And of course, you know, he lived in Memphis, which was uh, home to Sun Records. And that's when he started pitching Sam Phillips. And so again, it was not, not a great ambition, more than a burning desire to, to kind of get out of this life of selling appliances door to door. And then of course, uh, when he learned that he could do that full time, well, then he was, he was full on for it. What was the state of music at the time? So this is like early 50s. This is kind of before rock and roll was a thing. This is before Elvis. This is before Jerry Lee. In fact, all these guys were at Sun Records. So how would you describe what, like, what, was, what was in the air? What was percolating? And like, how did that actually, how did that contribute to Johnny Cash kind of emerging as a, as a big star during this time? Well, if you've heard the term, this was rock's big bang. This is when everything was starting to formulate, you know, like the, the you know, with the heavens and the earth, you know, in the rock and roll universe, it was, it was rock's big bang. So all these guys were coming on the scene at the same time, in the same place, in the same city. You know, you, you had Johnny Cash, you had Elvis Presley, you had Jerry Lee Lewis, you had Carl Perkins, and to, to, to some degree, uh, later on, Roy Orbison. And all these guys were coming to this place called Sun Records. And so it was a mix of rock, country, and it's what they call rockabilly. And so this was all, you know, 1954, 55, 56, uh, when all this was happening. You know, you, you look back later on and you go, wow, this is just, how does something like this happen? You know, in the, in the 90s, you had Seattle happening, you know, in the 60s, you had Motown. But this was kind of like the first post-war where things were happening at the same time in the same city. And so it just, it happened to be Memphis and it happened to be these four or five people. And the, so that's how it all started. But, but Cash is part of that. Yeah. And how did Johnny Cash see himself? Because, okay, you know, Elvis and Jerry Lee, those guys went on to be like, we're rock and roll stars. That's what we do. Did he, did Johnny Cash put himself in a genre? No, he didn't. And he never wanted to be put into a genre. I don't necessarily think he saw himself as country, but I don't necessarily think that he saw himself as uh, rock and roll either. And, and I, I, you know, I've read a lot of his early interviews at the time and he, I don't think he wanted to be defined. And so, and I think his early music certainly is beyond categorization other than maybe it was rockabilly. Yeah. And what do you think is, what, what was his big hit? Like, what was the thing that really caused him to break out? Well, he had a couple of the regional songs, but of course, Walk the Line was, was his big, big breakout hit. And that was in 56, because Elvis happened. And so when Elvis happened, then that, that's what really kind of inspired Cash. And then those two actually ended up on the same bill at a lot of shows. And but I walked the line was the one that became uh, the household hit, and it was a crossover hit. So, Cash, that's when he became really the the household name. The ironic part was I walked the line was uh, you know a song written for his his first wife, and she was bringing up the fact that you know that you know now that you're becoming popular, I see all these screaming girls these shows, and so he wrote he wrote this song I walked the line I walked the line for you you know and, and ironically later on. You know that wasn't the case. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a bit about that. What happened? But it, you know, his after Walk the Line, his career just shot off like a rocket, and he was touring all the time and just in recording. 
And it was really demanding. It was wearing him out. And to keep up with the, the demands, he started using amphetamines. Right. When did this start? Well, this started, I want to say, late 50s, early 60s. And th- this happened because, you know, rock and roll back then <laughs> was pretty primitive. I mean, it, think about this. We didn't really even have a highway system at that time. So when these guys were doing their one-nighters, they were taking these, you know, roads didn't weren't necessarily freeway. They were taking, you know, county, country highways to get to the gigs. And sometimes they were driving five, six hundred miles a night, if you can imagine that without a freeway. And so uh they needed a little help staying up because this was uh they were driving four and five to a car. They had the they had the instruments in the trunk. And you know, this was this was their life. I mean, they loved it. But, you know, even though they were young, it's, they, they still, they were on the road, you know, hours and hours at a time because when they finished their half hour gig, then they were on to the next one. So these were, you know, these, these, these pills were, were a way to help them stay up on the road. And then of course it developed into a full-time habit. And how did the drug use change them? Did it change them any in the beginning? Oh, it absolutely did. You know, it, it puts you on edge, you know, you stay up. 24 hours a day, then, you know, then you crash. And so, you know, and then it's like any addiction, the addiction kind of takes over and, and you are no longer yourself. You're, you're a slave to the drug. And so um, it, it changed his personality in that way, for sure. I mean, he became more, a little bit more selfish, didn't eat, got skinnier. I mean, at one point in time, I think he got down to like a hundred and 60, 70 pounds. Uh, you know, and this was a guy that was like six foot two and a big, big size guy. And it was also breaking down his health, which uh, of course almost took his life later on. Well, and it seemed early on he could, he did a pretty good job of hiding the addiction, but then there was, he had these moments where it act, like his, it started affecting his family and actually his musical performance. Were there anything that stood out to you? It was like, yeah, this is when people finally realized, yeah, this John, Johnny's got a problem. Well, one stands out. I kind of remember the story about it would have been like Jack's 21st birthday and John had uh, his brand new house, no furniture in there yet. And he got the whole family together and he set a place, you know, for Jack. I think, you know, the insinuation being that Jack was going to come to dinner that night. So, um, and then of course, uh, he, he was acting very strange and bizarre around his family. You know, usually when you're on drugs, uh, mom and dad's the last person that you want to, you know, that, that you're going to, you, I mean, you want to try to hide it from mom and dad. You know, you, those are the last people that you want to know, but it all came out kind of that weekend, I think. And then of course that's, they, they not only said he had a problem, but they said, our son ain't going to be around much longer. The other thing that was interesting about his addiction is that he had, would have these come to Jesus moments where he'd be like, okay, I got a problem. I'm going to commit to doing better. But then he would backslide. And this is, I mean, it happened, I guess, throughout all of his life for, I mean, even yeah. after into the seventies and eighties, he still was addicted to pills. Yeah, he was. And, and that was kind of the most frustrating part of writing about his life. He knew better, had people around him had everything going for him. And then, you know, he would, he would get, you know, he would get to the point where he got so bad and addicted again that you, you and then of course, you know, he'd fall back on his knees and, and pray. And, you know, after a while you go, man, this is getting old, but you know, you have to, you just have to say, well, this is a person with an addiction. And, um, 
you know, yeah. you, you can't, you, you can't put any sort of normalcy on, on a person with an addiction. They're, they're going to do what they're going to do and they're, they're slave to it. And, and, you know, given the recovery rates are what 96, 97% uh, chance that they're not going to recover. I mean, it's a miracle that he stayed alive as long as he did. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. If you're a business owner, the last thing you want to do this summer is sort through tons of unqualified candidates' resumes when you could be redoing your deck or relaxing in the pool. That's why you need ZipRecruiter to find great candidates. They do the work for you. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates up with your job. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply. Additionally, ZipRecruiter has a complete suite of tools that makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates. Four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So soak up all that summer has to offer and let ZipRecruiter do the work. Ready for the URL? It's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. That's where you can try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness, M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter.com, the smartest way to hire. Kuyu is an ultralight hunting brand that's relentless in solving the problems that hunters face in the field. Whether that's snow, rain, heat, high elevation, or tough terrain, Kuyu is gear that's designed to make sure that those things don't affect your pursuits. Kuyu has everything and anything you need for a hunt. They have clothing, they have packs, they have tents, they have sleep systems, and it's all designed to be super lightweight. The goal is to raise the bar of what's possible by pushing the boundaries of technology and performance. They see the test of a hunter's passion as numerous but surmountable. And that's why Kuyu is engineered to perform on the toughest hunts and roughest weather with ultra lightweight gear. If you're here for the hard way, the long way, and have the discipline to constantly improve your skills, if you're willing to start at the bottom and commit to a sport that can never be mastered, then you're here to hunt, and Kuyu has what you need. Kuyu knows that even when you're not hunting, you're thinking about hunting, doing the research. Head to Kuyu.com, that's K-U-I-U.com, to check out the gear your kit needs this season. And now back to the show. So you mentioned he started his music career after his first marriage. What was his first marriage like, and what was family life life like for him early on? Well, you know, his first wife Vivian was a real sweetheart, and that, and that was kind of, you know, he he recognized later on in life that uh, you know he he pretty much gave her a raw deal, in that they met, I think they met uh, the week before he was going to go away to Germany, and they they were just young lovers in the fifties where they meet and they have this wonderful time. They're roller skating. They're, they're, they're having dinner. They're, they're doing all these wonderful things. He goes away and they promise to write each other every day. And they do. And they write each other every day while he's away. Because I think she had a collection of like close to like 10,000 letters, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. But, but then when he gets back uh, and they get married, <clears throat> you know, the reality is com- something completely different. And then uh, of course, when he fell in love with June Carter, it completely changed that dynamic. And so, uh, but the sad part was, is that, you know, he had a children with Vivian. So, you know, he had, that's what also fed into the, the addiction was that he had this wife and these young kids and, uh, you know, he was going to end up leaving them because he was in love with, with June Carter. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How did he meet June Carter and like what happened to walk the line? Well, she was on the road with him. She was one of the acts that got hired on the road. And, you know, that, that's how they, they got involved. The movie is, is really not reality. The movie, I walked the line, 
because the you know it, I think the movie tries to portray that the, they didn't get involved until after she was divorced, and that you know that wasn't the case. But after they got married, I mean, it seemed like it was that was that was it. It was like a lifelong relationship with them. Yes, it was, and 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 there's no mistake in that that the two were in love, and I really think that, that June Carter was the love of his life. But it just, but it just so happened that unfortunately, you know, he got married to Vivian, realized that she wasn't the love of his life, and then, you know, of course, had they had children, and then and then later on, he had this whole other life with with June Carter. And, and you said that at the end of his life, you know, Johnny Cash kind of recognized that he gave Vivian the raw deal. I mean, at the time, like, how did he reconcile it? Did we have any ideas? Like, well, I, I know that they became friendly at the end of their lives because she actually came to pay him a visit to ask permission to write her book, and he said, "Hey, if anybody deserves to write a book, it's you for putting up with me." And so he was good in that way because he did he did recognize that. But during their lifetime, I should say, right up to that point where he did see her regarding the book, I'm not so sure that uh, they had reconciled anything. It was just. John left and now he's gone. And she had a really hard time. As a matter of fact, you know, she was losing a lot of weight and she finally had to see a doctor. And, you know, the doctor said, you need to do something because what you're doing, you know, what you're doing now is going to put you in the grave. He goes, and you've got four young children. And the the woman that took away your husband is going to be raising your children if you don't do something about it. So that's when Vivian said, Oh, okay. I need to now move on with my life and do something else. So she did get, she got remarried and, you know, had, had a very uh, happy uh, marriage to him. But Johnny was the one, you know, that just cast that long shadow over her life. All right. So throughout the 60s, this is like when Johnny Cash's career started taking off. He was, I mean, how, how popular was he during the 1960s? Oh, at, at one point, there was a golden period from 1968 where he did Folsom Prison to then the following year he had uh, the TV show and the TV show ran from 669 to 71. 1969, he outsold the Beatles, outsold the Rolling Stones. So can you imagine somebody today with a very popular TV show who could actually go out and tour and then put out all these number one records. I mean, I can't think of anybody today that could do that, but that was really his golden period in, in the, in the late sixties, believe it or not. So he had a fan base of people who already knew him and they also had a younger fan base. And these were the rock and roll kids because when he had his television show from 69 to 71, the show was based out of Nashville, but he was the first country guy to invite other rockers on his show. So he had Dylan on his show, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, you know, he had a lot of rock and roll acts. So on his show, you'd see rock, gospel, country. You'd even get some old jazz artists or some old R&B artists. So Johnny was just a big fan of music. And so he, again, it, it goes back to, he didn't want to be defined, but he also didn't want to define what acts would be on his show. He just wanted to introduce good rock music. So at that point in time, that's when he created the man in black persona. And the only people that the rockers really kind of respected in country was Johnny Cash. And, you know, he also had the respect of people from the previous decade. And he also had the respect of country. So you know, at that one point in time, Johnny Cash was the number one entertainer in the world. But, but during this time, he's still battling addiction, correct? Up to Folsom. Folsom was kind of his big comeback and, and kind of like his his big sobriety. And then so was the television show. 
And then he, he became, he rededicated himself to his faith because of all the good things that were happening to him. He didn't really fall back into addiction again until like the late seventies. So there was a period there of like a decade where he didn't have any issues with addiction. So he had this high point, 68 through 71, but then in the 70s, his career started to take a slide. What do you think happened there? Well, I think that happens with every career. It's what I call the mid-career slump. You know, all of a sudden you're, um, you know, you're, you're no longer, I guess, relevant would be the term, but you know, music is a young person's game and you know, you can't, you can't be a rock star forever. I mean, the Stones and Paul McCartney, yes, they're 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 rock stars, but let's be honest, the last time they had a hit were in the eighties. So that's that's four decades ago. So th- so what happens is you then then you start, you know, after a while, then you start living on your legend. And so Cash wasn't quite there yet. So he what he had become was a irrelevant artist by uh 1972, 73. And then you know that lasted for two decades. He really couldn't catch, you know, his his momentum again until the nineties. No, it was so bad. You described. Uh, I felt really bad for him. Like he got dumped by, I think it was Columbia, and then he had to basically audition, like like he's just starting out to even get a record deal. <laughs> it was it was not only not only that, but he had these young punks who kept him waiting, you know, in in the waiting room, and or would just blow him off altogether. It was really painful to hear those things because, you know, he certainly didn't deserve that. He had one guy that he, you know, he went up through the ranks with and and he just said, man, I can't believe Johnny Cash is auditioning for me. And, you know, Cash did it and still the guy wouldn't give him a record deal. So um, with the money guys, it's always, you know, okay, I'll give you a record deal, but it's not going to be the same money that uh, you used to make, you know, unless you sell records. So that's kind of where Cash was in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, you had this great line. You described him as he was respected, but not relevant. And that's like the worst place for a musician to be or an artist to be. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, you can say that about a lot of artists today, a lot of, a lot of uh, legacy artists, you can say that about. Relevance really is only with the younger audience and they decide who's relevant and why the reasons why they're relevant is, is beyond me, but everybody gets there. And, and how did he handle this low period in his career? I don't think he handled it very well. You know, he had to go to Branson, which, you know, for a country artist, you know, that was just kind of, that was like the signaling of, okay, my career's over and uh, I'm going to catch what little fame there is to catch by going to Branson. And so he didn't want to do that, but uh, that's kind of just where he was at that time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it got as low as you could get. There were some times when you know, then, then the money stopped coming in and, and he and June had to at, at times pawn some jewelry to pay, pay their staff. Because what happens is that you develop this certain lifestyle. You know, you've got a recording studio, you've got homes, you've got vacation homes, you've got staff. And, you know, I've written about Elvis Presley. I just finished a book on him right now. And so he fell into that same trap as well. Elvis, you would think had a whole lot of money, but he, he didn't have a whole lot of money at the end of his career. And so you know, they developed this lifestyle. And so when the hits stop coming and the money stops rolling in, you know, what do you do? And you also talk about, I mean, he even got kind of desperate. There's one point where he, he wrote this kind of uh, novelty song. It was like the, the chicken in black. And like, he dressed himself up yeah. like as like this kind of weird bank robber. And all of his friends were just like, Johnny, what are you doing? This is, this is so beneath you. But I think he wanted, like, he was trying to stay relevant uh, again, trying to get another hit. 
Well, and somebody, a historian named Mark Steelper, who was very helpful to me on the book, pointed out that, you know, Johnny had a history of doing some novelty hits. I mean, A Boy Named Sue was a, uh, was a novelty hit that turned out well. One Piece at a Time. One Piece at a Time was another one. Yeah. So, you know, Johnny felt like that it was probably time to do another one. And it just so happened that Chicken and Black was just so bad that it pretty much ended up just trashing his career. Okay, so yeah, he goes to Branson. He wanted to create, basically, he was trying to create like another Dollywood, but it'd be like Johnny Cash land. And that ended up, he didn't, it just sort of a dead end. Then in the early 90s, starting in the early 90s, there was this Johnny Cash revival. So what happened that allowed Johnny Cash to have one of the greatest, I would say it's one of the greatest second acts in music history. Like what happened? Oh, I, I agree with you. I think it could be perhaps the greatest comeback, greatest second act of all time. Well, it started with U2. And in the 80s, I think the U2, a couple of members of the U2 were driving through through the country and they, they were driving through Nashville and they wanted to meet Johnny Cash because they, they saw him as this legendary figure and Bono especially connected very well with Cash. And they just, you know, they just had a nice meal and Cash prayed and Bono was really taken by that. And so he never forgot it. So a few years later, they were recording that they had recorded a song that they felt was right for Cash. And so um, I think it was on the Zuropa album. And so they not only did the song, but then they did this um, video. And the, the song and the video were amazing. Can you imagine YouTube backing you on a track? And the song came out great. And then it was it was placed on this album as a mystery track. And then they did a video for it. And then it showed Cash in his heyday. And so that was the start of it. And then Rick Rubin then sees him playing live. And then Rick Rubin was the hot producer of the day and decided that he wanted to produce Cash. And so he did. And that, that, that pairing was called American uh, Recordings. And so they made, I think, three or four of those albums. And so, but Rick Rubin was kind of a very successful hip hop producer and produced, you know, a lot of things that were relevant. So, so you've got you two, and then you've got Rick Rubin who present this guy again and say, Hey, this guy's really cool. This is the guy that started it all. And then that's when all the young people then decided, okay, well, let's, let's explore who this guy is. So that's where cash had his big second uh, comeback. And then those Rick Rubin albums, a lot of them were like a lot of songs he recorded. They were they were cover songs of from other artists like Tom Petty, you know, Nine Inch Nails. But what was interesting is that Cash was able to make it his own with his own unique take on it. Yeah, and and it was just Cash and a guitar sometimes, and it it was this haunting voice. And yeah, I mean, this was a Generation X that really connected with them. They just they connected with the man in the black, the man. You know, in the, in the black jacket, the man that had survived all this and is still singing. And so he was, again, he was, he was relevant again. And, and that's really tough to do, you know, when you're in your 60s. So this went throughout his 60s and like he died when he, I guess when he was 71, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that last set. There's some really good songs. Some, like the Hurt video. Like I always cry when I watch that Hurt video. It is so... Because like because you know like what's like you can tell it's he's talking about his own addiction and his own struggles, and you see you know the Johnny Cashland uh, just sort of 
kind of empty and broken and it's really poignant. It really does. I, I get teared up every time I watch it. Oh, and, and it's pure artistry because he put himself out there. You know, everybody always tries to put their best foot forward, but but Cash was like, no, this is who I am. This is my life now. And yeah, there was something really, really uh, strong about it. And um, it, you know, it, it connected with that MTV crowd. All throughout his ups and downs of his life was his faith. But it was, how would you describe it? Because I think it's it's hard to describe. He's not like a, your stereotypical Ned Flanders, churchy Christian guy. <laughs> yeah, right. But he was deeply religious. I mean, how would you describe it? Well, he had this great wisdom about him. And he studied the Bible. And when I say studied, I'm not talking about like a home study. I mean, he, he was an ordained minister. And he actually got a degree. And we, I actually uh, interviewed the gentleman who gave him the, the degree. And he said the assignments that he turned in were the most profound and the deepest that he had ever seen in his career. And he'd been doing it for 50, 60, 70 years. So, I mean, that, that kind of just shows you where Cash was. Cash also came from a long line of preachers. So this was in his blood and this is what he wanted. Again, for me, the frustrating part was, and, and I'm not one to judge, but it was like, okay, so you know these things, you have this great wisdom, and yet you couldn't stop yourself when the time came. So um, there was always this falling down, dusting himself off, and getting back up again. And you know, and that happened throughout his whole life. So it was just, it's just interesting. And and you know, wanting to get baptized again, and and going to Israel and walking the streets, and knowing not only knowing the knowledge, but knowing where these places were and seeing these places firsthand and making a film about Jesus and, and putting all of his money up to make the film. So, I mean, it was, it was a real faith. Yeah. We also wrote a book about Paul the Apostle, right? That's right. It was, it was, it was a fictional account. But that, yeah. yeah, so he was, he was successful on many levels as an artist. I mean, uh, you know, he was a great songwriter, singer, could act in television and movies. And then he wrote a fictional book. I mean, the guy was just incredible. And the way you describe it too is that he was deeply religious and he wasn't afraid to share it, his faith. And but the way you describe when you, you interview, you know, some of the people he ran with in the in his heyday, some of these guys they didn't believe in God, they weren't religious. And they described like even when Cash got religious with us, it didn't feel like put upon. Like it just felt like the most natural thing in the world. Right. And it didn't exactly. So, so as a consequence, it, it wasn't off-putting. They're just like, okay, this is important to Johnny and I'm going to respect that. Well, and the best story of that comes from the actor, John Schneider. He did a TV movie with, with John and he actually lived with Cash and his wife, June, for a couple months. And they'd go fishing together. They they do a lot of things together. Cash never talked about religion to him, but he had a Bible in the trunk of his car. They'd go fishing and then John would say, well, Time for me to go and study my Bible. And through that example, I mean, John Schneider said, you know, if a man's man like Johnny Cash has to go every day and study the Bible and crack it open, there's got to be something to it. And so he influenced people in that way. What's your takeaway from Johnny Cash? Do you think there's anything we can learn about living from his life? Well, I mean, uh, again, he was a man of contradictions. And the, men, the, the people of contradictions are always the most interesting to write about. It's also frustrating in a way. But that's, you know, that's the thing about artists is that they, uh, you, you know, artists are artists. And you can't, uh, 
they don't live neat, clean lives. They live messy lives. But in the case of Cash, he always knew where to go back to. And that was, uh, he, he drew upon his faith. That was kind of like his, his center and his home. So that's, that's what he would always go back to. And that's, that's where he was at the end of his life. And I think the takeaway for me is like, don't ever give up. And I mean, that's the thing I got from Johnny Cash. Like he was relentless. Like he just kept trying and trying. And I'm sure there's people who are listening who have struggled with their addiction or know someone that has an addiction and you feel, you just want to feel like you want to give up. But I think there's something from Johnny Cash we can learn that you just got to keep trying, man. You got to get back on the the saddle and get going again. Well, and, and that certainly speaks to not only his personal life, but his professional life. I mean, he knew he knew his fame had been slipping away and he knew that his relevance was slipping away for two whole decades. He clawed and clawed and clawed. And finally, he got back there again before he passed. And so that was kind of the, the beautiful thing to witness is that... Uh, you know, he wanted that one last turn in the sun and he got it. Well, Marshall, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book? I think the best way just to go to Amazon and buy a copy of Johnny Cash, The Redemption of American Icon. And then a documentary is going to be based on this book. We don't have a title for it yet. It wraps the end of this month and they should probably be looking for it sometime in the fall of 2022. Fantastic. Well, Marshall Terrell, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, my guest today was Marshall Terrell. He's the co-author of the book, Johnny Cash, The Redemption of American Icon. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his book at our show notes at aom.is slash cash. We can find links to resources when we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the a one Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the a one Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the a one Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with the friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminds you on a list now on podcast, but put what you've heard into action. You made it. Here. Finally checked out of office to check into the sweet views of that place you've always wanted to go you know the one it's nice even the kids like it this place is so cool and they never like it mom can we go to the pool look at that not even asking for the wi-fi when you're with amex it's not if it's going to happen but when american express don't live life without it